have this kind of faith. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning is how can we have great faith? And I wonder as I talk about this, as I've studied this, I just wonder uh, what value do you and I place on faith? Where does that rank in our order of significance and importance? And how do our actions follow suit? When we look at the Bible, what it says about faith, uh, faith's the whole deal, really. We look at what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So that's interesting. So Peter is putting this idea out that is really different than the way that we normally think about our lives in the world. And he's saying that there is this rejoicing that should occur in relationship to different trials that we go through. He also notes that trials are grievous. And he notes that trials are various. And he notes that trials are for a little while. Are you thankful for that? And he notes that trials are allowed by God into our life for needful things. So they do certain things. So trials are are needful. Have you ever thought of a trial? I know all of you are going through a trial right now. And maybe some of your thinking is, why do I have to go through this? I wish I wasn't going through this. The biblical perspective is that they're needed. Trials are needed. The biblical perspective is that they're temporary. The biblical perspective is that if we understand them correctly, that we, we can rejoice in the things that we're going through, even though we are grieved by them. And then he says in verse 7, he says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though if it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So now there's these trials. He tells us they're needed because they do something to the most important thing that God sees a believer needing to possess, and that's faith. So trials are instruments that God uses to bring about a purity of the most important thing to God, and that is our faith. So to be able to understand faith and the importance of it, he says it's more precious or more important or more valuable than material things. Why? Material things, uh, they go away. They perish. They don't go on into eternity with us. But our faith is something that determines our eternity. One, 
It's by faith that we're saved. And then two, it's by faith that we live our life as believers. So extremely important. And so God seems to have a different way he looks at things than a lot of times we look at things. So God values our faith. He values our faith. He values faith more than our comfort. He values faith more than us not going through things. He values our faith more than that. And so because of that, he will allow us to go through trials. And those trials are an opportunity for us to get rich in the things of God. So these trials then, if we go through them by faith, they grow our faith and they grow us in the things of God. How do they do that? Because these trials, they test what we really value. It's when we go through trials, we find out what's really important to us, how heavenly-minded we really are and how earthly-minded we really are. It tests that maybe we have idols in our life. Maybe we have a, a different value of something than God has on it. Maybe we've prioritized something uh, above God. And so that's what these trials do. And that's why James, in a very common verse to uh, a lot of people, tells us that the testing of our faith produces something. What does it produce? It produces patience, which means it produces an ability to continue to persevere and not go back and not retreat, not go into the world, not get worldly, but it actually conditions us, strengthens us, so that we will have a continual larger capacity to exercise our faith in whatever situation that we're going through. So that means that our faith can actually grow. That means that hopefully our faith is different this year than it was last year. Hopefully five years ago our faith is different than it is this year. Hopefully we've, we've grown in our faith. And so that verse in James, it says that, that these trials, they actually produce, they work, they're working for us, they work patience, but then he says there's an end to that, an end to that, and the end is that we would be perfect, complete, and get this, lacking in nothing. So that means when our faith is strong, that means God sees us in a position that we're not lacking anything. So that shows you how important our faith is, the emphasis that God places on our faith. So we have to ask ourselves the question, again, what value do we place on our faith? How important is our faith? Where does it rank in our priorities as we think about life? Where does it rank in our value or, or things that are important to us? Where does it rank? In Hebrews 11, that very important passage of Scripture about faith, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. As we look through the Bible, we find it's basically an account of those who exercised their faith and those who didn't. 
That's what the Bible is. It's about those who believed and those who didn't. Those who exercised their faith and those who didn't. So you read through the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Great thing to do tonight. As you read through this, it talks about faith and has this phrase, by faith they did this, by faith this happened, by faith they did this. And so as we read our Bible, we understand the things that, that went on, just say in the Old Testament. This is the book of Hebrews points to the Old Testament. The things that happen, they all happen by faith. And so it talks about all these different people that we may think about. It talked about the, the elders, by faith the elders earned a good testimony. So the elders were just basically those important people in the Old Testament, significant people, but they gained a good testimony by faith. We think about and go all the way back to Abel. Cain and Abel. How did Abel have a good testimony? He gave an offering to God and he did it by faith. And what does that mean? It, he gave an offering to God that God told him to do. And maybe for him it seemed kind of weird. But God told him to do it, so he did it. Do you realize that a lot of things that happen seem kind of weird? But by faith, they're not because God sees them different. Well, he go, it goes on in Hebrews 11. It talks about Enoch. Remember him? He just got whisked away. He didn't die. He got translated away. And what was his deal? He walked by faith and had a good testimony and he pleased God because he walked by faith, and therefore he didn't die. What about Noah? It goes on and talks about Noah. Well, what did Noah do? He built an ark where it never rained before in the history of the world, but God told him it was going to rain, so he built an ark. How did he do that? By faith. That's how he did it. Well, what about Abraham? Abraham left his family and his land. Why did he do that? He left because God told him to, and he did it by faith. Did it make sense? No. What is it? Strange? Yeah. But now we can look back and see all that God did through Abraham. What about Sarah? Well, she was very old, and she was, not, she was so old, she was not able to have kids. But God told her that through her, she would have a son of promise. And so she believed God. It took a little bit, but she believed God. And then she had a child, the child of faith. That child was Isaac. What about Isaac? Isaac... Surrendered to the will of God because he accidentally blessed what he thought was the wrong one. And then when he found out, he was upset and then eventually understood that was what God's doing and he accepted it. What about Jacob? Jacob blessed his sons. Why did he bless his sons? Because God told him to because they would become the nations of Israel. What about Moses? Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He esteemed the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. So Moses gave it all away. He gave his position, he gave power, he gave uh, pleasure, he gave resources, he just gave it all away. How did, why did he do that? He did it by faith. How did the walls of Jericho fall down? By faith. How did Rahab find herself in Hebrews chapter 11? It's because God told her to hide the spies, and she did by faith. Why did she? She preserved her life where everybody else 
died. What about Gideon? He defeated the Midianites by faith. What about Barak? He defeated the Canaanites by faith. What about Samson? He defeated the Philistines by faith. What about Jephthah? He defeated the Ammonites by faith. What about David? He defeated Goliath by faith. What about Samuel? He anointed David by faith. What about the prophets? They did everything by faith. Do you get it? So don't read the Old Testament and just think that's a neat story, that's cool. That's... No, it's all, it's all about faith, the exploits of faith. So let's bring that to Jesus then. And taking all those things and bringing them forward and saying, look, faith is important. It's valuable. It's the thing. It's the currency of heaven. It's how we touch heaven. It brings in the supernatural. And so we get this account. Let's take a look in verse 1 of chapter 7. So it says, Now when Jesus concluded all his sayings, so he had been going around the Sea of Galilee to different villages and towns. He was, uh, be, right before this, he was on a plain on the sort of the hillside near the Sea of Galilee, and he was giving the Sermon on the Plain, which is similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Some people think it's the same. I don't, but it doesn't really matter. The, the message is the same, and he's, he's talking about the differences that having faith makes. And he specifies having faith in God helps us to love our enemies. We can't do that normally. He tells us about the new nature that we need to have when we become Christians because a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. And then he finishes telling us about how we're to build our life and we're to build it on a solid foundation. And what is that? It's doing God's Word. So the one who does God's Word, they do that by faith because they believe God's word is true, and regardless of how we, how we think, how we feel, how we understand things, we, regardless of that, we walk by faith. We do what God says, and that's how we weather the storms of life. So in Luke chapter 7, it really goes along with what we just said, and he's saying now, as he finished filling up, the cup of teaching. He taught everything, in, in other words, everything that he possibly could. Now he entered Capernaum, which is, was a village, and that's where he stayed. That was sort of his hometown, his home base when he go, would go out to ministry. So he would stay in Capernaum, and, and so he's back there. He has history there already. He had already done miracles. He had already done healings. He healed a, a nobleman's uh, a nobleman's daughter, and so now he's back. So as he comes back, there's talk. There's those who have said Jesus healed, and Jesus was here before, and we saw him cast a demon out of someone in the synagogue. And so, th- you know, you know how small towns are. They talk. So there's talk. Everybody. So he comes back. And so back, it says there was a certain centurion, his servant. 
The servant was dear to him. That's a very important point. Because if, you, if you're sort of a, a history person, a lot of those things are, don't make sense. They're, they're weird. A centurion, his servant, and was dear to him. Why is that weird? Because a centurion was a Roman soldier over a hundred people. That means that he was part of the occupiers of the land of uh, Israel, the land of Judah, the land of Jerusalem. So they were the enemies. So they were in power. They were in control. This centurion soldier would have been a very powerful man, and he would run the town. He would run the village. And then the word servant, that means he, he had a slave. There were were a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire, and slaves were treated poorly, very poorly. They were treated as objects. They were treated in a heartless way. They were treated in a way where it was very pragmatic to where they were just to be useful like a tool. So when the handle of your hammer breaks, what do you do? Don't say you fix. I know some of you extra special people fix it. But you throw it away. Some of you fix it, but just for sake of analogy, you throw it away. So that's how they treated slaves. They would just discard them. They're not useful anymore. But this powerful military man who was used to conquering violence, death, getting his power across to other people through an iron fist, It said that he treated his servant differently. The servant was dear to him. This is how a lot of trials go. A lot of trials are are trials that we face because there's something we care about very much. The centurion soldier, he cared about his servant very much. It says a lot about this centurion servant, doesn't it? And we don't know exactly uh, why he cared so much. Uh, He was probably, which a a lot of Romans were, they were uh, fell in the category of a a God fearer. So what that means is the the Jews and their religion was juxtaposed to the multiple gods of the Grecian Empire, which came before the Roman Empire, but also. The Roman Empire, they worshipped the Caesars, the, the powers that were in control, the government, the highest man. So they worshipped them. And then the Jews were there as a, a sort of a testimony that there is one God and he can be known. And he was the God of their forefathers. And there were many Romans who didn't convert to Judaism, but they did respect and worship the God of Israel without being full converts. And that... that would be possible for this centurion soldier because there's another centurion soldier in Acts chapter 10 whose name is Cornelius. We find Cornelius who is stationed in Caesarea Maritime by the sea. We find that Cornelius would be one of or the first Gentile converts as a centurion soldier to Christianity. The first Gentile or non-Jew to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a God-fearer. 
So it sort of set many of the Romans up for an understanding of who the true God is. And then do you remember at the cross, the centurion that was orchestrating the whole crucifixion of Christ, he professed Christ as Lord and praised him. So the one in charge of crucifying Jesus became a believer in Jesus. And so we have this particular centurion soldier, and he had a soft heart. He had a a tenderness towards his servant, but that soft, tender heart set the stage for great hurt. And that's why many people have such a hard heart, not a tender heart, because they have been hurt or they're afraid to get hurt. But the answer is not to harden your heart. The answer is to have faith in Jesus. But let's watch this unfold. So as it unfolds, this servant of the centurion was sick and ready to die. He was sick and ready to die. That phrase there, I I believe, sets the tone for this whole section of Scripture. Because we're talking about great faith. And in all those examples in Hebrews 11, and every example in the Bible you'll see of great faith, there's always great difficulty. Here the difficulty is described as sick and ready to die. And I wonder and I bet that many of us have a situation in our life that is sick. It's not well. And it may be close to dying. And we're facing that. And we're having to deal with that. This situation that is sick and ready to die, have you ever considered that this condition that's sick and ready to die is an opportunity for God to do something great. Because in order for there to be an exhibition of God's faith, there has to be a certain condition to where you and I realize there's nothing we can do about it. In other words, we kind of have to give up. And we kind of have to say, well, this... This thing in my life that's sick and ready to die, as much as I want to preserve it and fix it and make it better, I absolutely don't have the ability to do that. This was the condition of the centurion. You might want to call it desperate. He was desperate. Sometimes desperations, desperation or desperate times are the only things that will finally get us to a place of having true faith. Why is that? Because we have so many options. We have so many options not to have faith. And we have so many options to have faith, but then add other things in and call that faith. You might want to say props, things that make us feel a little bit better. Because pure, absolute faith is very difficult. But I want to tell you that whatever you're facing, whatever is sick and dying, whatever that is in your life, I want to tell you that you have, God has given you, it's not from you, God has given you 
a measure of faith for that particular issue. So you have it. God doesn't take us through something and abandon us. But what he does is equip us as we go through this. So, so we have the faith to go through what we're going through. So in verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him. So he was able to do that because he was a centurion. He was able to recruit the Jews. He probably felt like he wasn't able to communicate well as a Roman to Jesus, a Jew. So he thought, I'll, I'll send a delegation. I'll send some Jews to the Jew. And so we, ha- we have some amazing things because that's, that's weird too. Jews doing things for the Roman and the Roman asking the Jews to do things for him. And I'm, I'm saying all this and pointing this out because I want you to know When Jesus is around, things are different. And we have to surrender our presuppositions or our preconceived ideas of how God works or how we think our life is going to go, how we think things are going to end up. Because when Jesus is around, things are different. He doesn't work according to our schedule, according to our plans. He works according to a divine plan, and He works all things together for good. So whatever is sick and dying in your life, it may be a shock and a surprise, and much of that is because you feel like you're being ambushed, caught off guard. I didn't see that coming. Have you ever said that before? Where'd that come from? How's this happening? And in in reality, God doesn't see it that way. God sees the beginning from the end. And he works things all together for good. And what we're looking at, we may say, this is not good. This is terrible. But the point of Romans 8.28 is not that all things are good. It's that he works them all for good. Right? So some of you cake bakers, you put all those ingredients together. But a raw egg, unless you're rocky, a raw egg doesn't look that good. But it's an ingredient into making something amazing, right? So you take a raw egg by itself unless you're Rocky. How many saw Rocky and actually tried that, drinking raw eggs? I see you guys. I did that too. (laughs) And then I went running after that in my gray sweatsuit. Anyway, at 4.30 in the morning. I was young. I was, I was a little kid, but I had ambitions. But, but see, see, this is what a lot of us, probably all of us, we look at these raw eggs and we say, that looks terrible. And we don't understand that God is working those raw eggs together with a lot of other things to make something beautiful. And God makes everything beautiful in His time. And so what is horrible and ugly might just be the ingredients to something amazing and beautiful. And that's how God works all things together for good. But we have to be able to let go and stop holding on of the way we view things 
And that's why in James it says, let patience have its perfect work. What that means is we have to allow God to work his thing out and stay out of it. Stop trying to manipulate it, control it, and steer it because it's going to be beyond what you're able to do. Instead, let the process work and produce and develop and bring about what God wants it to be. And how does that happen? It by faith. So faith becomes the star when our trials become strong. Faith has the opportunity to show off when we're out of opportunities. In other words, we're desperate. We have no other things, no other options. We're just to the point where we say, Lord, help me. And in Hebrews 11, you look at all those stories, that was the account of those stories. It was God doing the impossible through individuals who trusted and exercised their faith and simply let God do His will and His plan. So in verse 3, it's when He heard about Jesus and He sends the Jews to Him, all of these strange occurrences in the story are all part of God working and these Jews, they come to Jesus and they plead with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. So the Roman centurion sends these Jewish delegates to Jesus. And these Jewish delegates are trying to convince Jesus to do something. And their basis for convincing Jesus to do something is based on the fact that this soldier deserves you to do something. So their idea is still one of merit, of works, of good works, of deserving. And I find that interesting. We're going to see uh, something that happens in a minute. But we do find that the centurion then, the Jews and the centurion soldier had a very good relationship. It says in verse 5, this centurion, he loves our nation and he's even built us a synagogue. So now... Now we start to think about this promise that was given to Abraham. Abraham, by the way, was the father of faith because he believed God. And because of his belief in God, God, God accounted it to him as righteousness. But going all the way up back to Abraham, God gave Abraham a promise. And part of that promise in Genesis 12, 3 was that God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. So they're saying, hey, look, this guy, he loves our nation. Do something good for him. 
And it's almost like the, the Jews are feeling like, well, you're our guy, you're a Jew, and you do Jew things and stuff for Jewish people, but we'd like you to do something for this non-Jew person, which is really odd. But when Jesus comes, things are not like we think they are. Now, before I move on, I have to point out that these great difficulties are opportunities for God to work miracles. But you notice something that is important. Where it says in verse 3 that they, they came to Jesus to ask Him to heal the servant of the centurion. And then in verse 4, when they came to Jesus. So this is important because one of the importance of or significance of faith is it has to be pure. And when I say that, I mean sometimes we exercise faith, but we also exercise five different things. So we're, we're putting faith in God to work, and then we're actually then trusting in a bunch of other things to work. This situation was so desperate that there weren't any plan Bs. It was either Jesus was going to do a miracle or wasn't going to happen at all. And I want to encourage you and su suggest to you that whatever is sick and dying in your life, I want to tell you that the only answer is Jesus. And He is the answer. And He is providing the answer. Be careful of straining for other things and other fixes and other works. That doesn't mean there's practical things that maybe we have to do and, and, and deal with. But what it means is that our full trust and hope is resting completely in Jesus doing something or not. All throughout the Bible, we are told that in God we have everything that we need. Jesus even said to his disciples in John 14, 26, he said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. So what does that tell us? So now we have the Holy Spirit to help us. And it says in John that he will teach us all things. That means that whatever we need to know, God will reveal it to us. He's not going to hide it. Hide it. He's not in a big. He's not a practical joker where he's having practical jokes and leading us down one way and then pulling the rug out and saying ha ha ha. He's basically saying, if you cry out for help, I'll help. I'm sending a helper, and the helper is the Holy Spirit. So then in James one five it says, if you lack wisdom. Ask, and it will be given to you. So, there's, so, so we have the Holy Spirit who is our helper. We have an offer of wisdom giving to us. If you want wisdom, just ask, and I'll give you wisdom. We have complete sufficiency in Christ. Colossians 2.10 says we are complete in Him. In God's Word, in 2 Peter 1.3, it says, His divine power has given to us 
all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by knowledge and glory. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that's just a little sample. So if that's the case, then how should we be handling these difficulties in our life that are categorized as sick and dying, dying, God has the answer. It's all in Him. Everything's in Him. It's, we should be pursuing Him then. That should be where our energy goes. Our energy, effort, and passion should be in pursuing Him and in exercising our faith in Him. And because we're doing that, then the way we handle these huge problems that we have in our life is we simply take one step of of obedience and faith after the next step of obedience and faith. That's how we do it. We resist the temptation of getting into our flesh, of wanting to control everything and dictate everything. We resist that and we let God work His thing out. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's how you know you're yoked to Jesus. He is carrying your burden. So we can rest in that. So then he he goes on in verse 6, and now he talks about great humility. So in order for us to have great faith, not only do... We need to have great difficulty, but we have to have great humility. Watch what happens. In verse 6, it says, Jesus went with them, the two elders of the Jews. And when he was already not far from the house where the servant was sick and dying, the centurion sent friends to Jesus saying, Lord. So that's significant. So the centurion is calling Jesus Lord. Could that be a sign of just a sign of respect? Yes, but what we find later is he's already calling him one that one would say that they are surrendered to him as their Lord and Savior. So he says, Lord, don't trouble yourself. In other words, he's saying, don't come too close, Jesus. Jesus was a Jew, and if he went into a Gentile's house, that would be a problem. This Roman soldier would have known about that. This Roman soldier would have been experiencing Jesus approaching him, knowing that this Roman soldier has probably manipulated people, killed people, did things that were very bad to attain his position. And so as Jesus was coming closer, he knew the righteousness of Jesus and the power of Jesus and he didn't want to bother Jesus and he just said, my sick slave is dying but you don't have to come too close. And the reason why, look what he says. He says, 
For I am not worthy that you should enter my roof or enter my house. So the reason, as Jesus got closer, the reason there was sort of a a pushback is because of the feeling of his own unworthiness before God, thus giving us another hint to the reality that he understood that Jesus was God. This is a common feeling of someone that gets closer to God, that one, as we get closer to God, we experience the unworthiness and sinfulness of our own condition. That's why in the Garden of Eden, when sin entered in, that Adam hid from God. And so the centurion soldier is experiencing righteousness and deity and power and love and kindness and mercy, and it's coming close and it's making him feel uncomfortable. And the reason why is he's experiencing the difference between him and Jesus. And this is one who has a a powerful position on earth and many people look at and say, you're amazing, you're awesome. This is something that a position in the world he aspired to. And then the reality of, of Jesus in his life makes him feel unworthy. In other words, he's broken. He's poor in spirit. And this is often what God will allow to happen in our life when we need it, when trials come in, because we need to be broken to Jesus. We have a tendency to be prideful, rebellious, self-sufficient, independent, and then just sort of slide a little Jesus into our self-controlled life. We need to be broken. And so we see as Jesus comes, he's broken. He has a desperate situation He can do nothing about Jesus is coming and entering and he just feels so unworthy. In verse 7, he says it again. He says, therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. So I sent some Jews to you because I I didn't even want to come to you. That feeling of unworthiness. And so this great humility, that's, that's interesting. Because now what we're starting to really see the ingredients of God working, one, to change the centurion's life. Do you know the star of this account is not the servant who is healed? The star of this account is the centurion and his faith. And so we're learning what great faith looks like. We're learning what type of faith changes an individual, but also changes circumstances and conditions. And it's just this brokenness, this great humility that comes through great difficulties in our lives. So in other words, we we need great difficulties. But as we go through great difficulties, we have to learn the importance of getting through those is by faith and faith alone. That's what God is really trying to teach us. How do we get through the valley of the shadow of death? It's by faith and faith alone. It's by trusting Him. It's by unconditional faith and thrusting ourselves at the feet of Jesus and just saying, okay, Lord, I'm unworthy. I'm in an impossible situation. Your will be done. 
But this centurion now does the thing that Jesus marvels at. Look what he says in the second half of verse 7. The centurion says, don't come close. You don't need to, to get any more near to the servant. He says, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, that's amazing. Because in Jesus' time and in our time, there's so much emphasis put on the technique, right? Put on how do you heal a person? Do you touch them with one hand? Do you touch them with two hands? How about get your sport coat and wave it and do one of these numbers? How about you touch him on his forehead and he gets slain in the spirit? Well, what if you didn't touch him right? Maybe you need to touch him another way. Maybe it's the wrong part of your hand. And, and we have all these things. And, and we see through the Bible, it has nothing to do with any technique. It has everything to do with what is being said here. Say the word and my servant will be healed. What that means is he's acknowledging that Jesus has the power to do whatever he wants to do at his command. Do we believe that? The centurion believed that. This power that Jesus possessed was the power that said the word and there was the world. Did you know that every material thing that we see in the world came from nothing? So it wasn't a reshaping or remolding of things that we're here is, let there be light. There's light. There was never light before. Let there be land. There's land. There's never land before. Let there be skies. Let there be ocean. It was all at the word of God. And this Jesus that is in front of the centurion was the very one in whom the world came forth from. And he's standing right before the centurion. So what does that mean? That means... His understanding of God was big. He was a big godder. Not a little godder. He was a big godder. Why was he a big godder? Because he believed him as the Bible says he is. Maybe we're just very little godders. We don't change the size of God. But we change the size of our faith by how we view God, by how correctly we view God. When we view God correctly, we will not be able to contain in our little minds the transcendence of God, the bigness of God, the glory of God, whatever word you want to put in there. And so we need to be people that understand God the best we can as He is. Infinite. Mighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sovereign, all-in-control. This amazing, immense God, this centurion, had this faith. He had this belief that you just say something and it is. And I love that. You know how that, that is very applicable 
to us because a lot of you have your Bible sitting there and you have a whole book of things that he said. Whatever he says in there, it is. And we can rest on that. And you say, well, I don't know, this is happening and this doesn't look like it looks like impossible. Look like, but it says, whatever it says in there, it's, it's, it's going to happen. And this centurion knew that. So he said, you don't need to come into my house. You don't need to put your hand on him. You don't need to do anything. Just say it. And my servant, which, by the way, that word servant means young man or little boy. So this is a little boy. He will be healed. Verse 8, for I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, I say, come, and he comes. And to my servant. I say, do this, and he does that. So this Roman centurion is understanding God based on his understanding of his life in this world. Isn't that interesting that God will give everybody the ability to understand him and even in particular to our our particular thing in this world? What we do in this world and, and the things that we experience. So this... The soldier, he knew that Jesus was God and he knew that he did miracles before. He knew the righteousness of God, the ability of God. He knew all those things. And then he begins to start to understand about that because of his life that is less than Jesus' life in the sense of God is God and he's a man. And as a man... He has this power because of his position to send people, to bring people back. So that's power, right? So the power that he had, the earthly power that he had, was based on the position that he held. And so he he took that and he, he understood authority, understood power, and he related that to Jesus. And he said, if I am like this as a man, a sinful man then you, where you sit, you have authority over death. You have authority where you sit because of your authority, your seat, and this is ascribing deity to Jesus. And Jesus has been proving that he has authority over nature. He had calmed the winds and the storms, no problem. He showed that he has a Authority over demons and darkness, casting demons out and demons obey him. He had the authority where he sat to bring life out of death, Lazarus healing from the dead. He showed that he can uh, heal the blind and give uh, uh, the ability to hear to those who can hear. So all of that was Jesus saying, look, I am the supreme authority. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. I am over all, in all, and through all. I am everything. And this centurion, in his position, he realized that Jesus was all-powerful. And all he needed to do is say it, and he would be healed. But see, great faith, if we want Jesus to marvel at our faith, we will have to... Believe in the power of God. And that will be demonstrated by 
are thrusting ourselves and subjecting ourselves completely and fully, fully to Him and saying, Lord, your will be done. And not recruiting a bunch of other things to make us feel better. Christ and Christ alone. Faith and faith alone. And it will be demonstrated, our faith will be demonstrated by our resting in Him, His will and His plan. And so what comes from all this, we'll wrap it up in these, this last verse, two verses. So here's a promise. The promise is great results. Promise is great results. When we walk by faith, the promise is great results. Look what happens. When Jesus heard what he said, he marveled at him. And Jesus actually turned around and said to the crowd that followed him. So Jesus is, is now boasting on this man to the crowd. He turns around and he says, I have not found such great faith. Not even in Israel. Why is he saying that? That's where he was supposed to find it. In Israel. And he turns around to the crowd and he tells the whole crowd, this man right here, that's the whole thing right there. You want to understand what it means to have faith, what it means to have a relationship with God? And he was completely blown away. And he tells the people about it. Verse 10, it says, And those who were sent, they returned to the house, and they found the servant well who had been sick. So the results of faith, the results of faith, will always end in wholeness and wellness. That's what that word well means. It means uh, wholeness, healing, uncorrupted. So how does that all work out then as we just sort of put that all together? The emphasis and the point was on the faith of this man. An unconditional faith that put all the results into God's hand and did not trust in anything else. But here's the promise. We don't always know how something is going to turn out. Our faith is unconditional in the results, but it's conditioned upon the reality and the truth that whatever God does, it'll be made whole, healthy, and right. And that's the payoff. When Jesus enters in and those around Jesus exercise their unconditional faith in Him, He will make everything whole, healthy, and right. It may look different than you think, but that's okay. The promise is Jesus will make everything healthy, whole, and right. Our job is to put our faith in Him and have great faith in a world that is tempting us at every corner away from faith and to trust in other things. Watch yourself grow. Watch your confidence. Watch your peace. Watch your joy. Watch your serving. Watch all that grow when your life is built on the rock of Jesus Christ and you exercise faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and I know that there are many trials represented before us this morning and always will be. And 
during these uh, pressing, crushing times, Lord. We thank you that you are administering perfect peace at the same time. And thank you for the opportunity to grow our faith, Lord. And now we look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray that we would exercise the measure of faith that you've given us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that our lives, as we look back someday, would be able to say that we have run the race, that we have exercised our faith, and we have seen you work amazing things in our life, Lord. I pray that we would grab eternity through our faith, and that our hearts, our minds, and minds would be set on the things above and not on things of earth, Lord. And one last thing, I just want to invite anybody here who is not saved, who has never put their faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. I want to pray for you now that you would exercise saving faith by crying out to Jesus and saying, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. You can do that right now. Let's all stand and are going to Worship the Lord before we go. If anybody would like prayer about anything this morning, just feel free to come on up as we sing this last song and our prayer team will be happy to pray for you guys. God bless you. Let's worship the Lord.